Okay, is your girlfriend conscious? Yes. Is she awake? Yeah, same like me. But, but we are very buried because... Okay, so what makes you think somebody poisoned your food? Because, um... She was my ex-girlfriend. She came to visit me. You think your ex, you think your ex-girlfriend's done it? Yeah, yeah. January 2009. A West London man and his fiancée sat at their dinner table to share a meal and to discuss their wedding planned for Valentine's Day. Just hours after he made this 999 call, Lakvinda Chima was dead and his fiancée critically ill. The dead man's suspicion lay with his spurned ex-girlfriend. But where was the proof that this mother of three was behind the plot? Aconite poisoning is extremely rare, and indeed a lot of doctors haven't even heard of it before, let alone know what its effects would be or how to identify a poisoning of this case. Today, we'll find out what happened when Q were called upon to help catch a killer. We have this very sophisticated equipment that allows us to have this fingerprint of the chemicals. I'm James Wong, and you're listening to Unearthed, Mysteries from an Unseen World. From Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew. Lakvinda Chima was known to his friends as Lucky. He and his girlfriend, Gurjeet Chunga, were busy planning their wedding. Chunga was 21 and had been in a whirlwind relationship with exciting times ahead. But early in their engagement, Chunga had made an unexpected discovery. A woman called Lakvia Singh revealed that she and her fiancé had been lovers for 15 years. Lucky had ended the affair, but his ex-lover had been heartbroken, sending messages that became increasingly more abusive. But was this a motive for murder? Lakvir Singh was a mother of three. Her husband was suffering with cancer in hospital. In January 2009, Singh went to Lucky's house in Feltham and was let in by the lodger, who saw her go into the fridge and take out a container of curry. It was this curry that Lucky and his fiance were to later eat. After symptoms had started to appear, Lucky's sister and nephews helped get him and Gurji in the car to West Middlesex Hospital. But within hours, he was dead. Gurjeet was placed into a medically induced coma while scientists sought to identify the substance. This ultimately saved her life. I'm uh, Luke Smith. I'm a consultant in acute medicine with an interest in toxicology. We see a lot of things like paracetamol poisoning, alcohol poisoning, things like that, aspirin, occasionally carbon monoxide. In terms of plant poisonings, not as common, but still we do see things. Plants generally tend to produce a lot of chemicals which have effects, and it depends on how you define plant poisoning. For example, cocaine itself would be a plant poison in its truest sense of the, the word. So we see quite a lot of that actually coming in into St Thomas's Hospital anyway. Aconite poisoning is extremely rare and indeed a lot of doctors haven't even heard of it before, let alone know what its effects would be or how to identify a poisoning of this case in, in a poisoned patient. In this particular case, the poisoning was so severe that the evolution of symptoms was very rapid and the, the patients became extremely poisoned, extremely ill very, very quickly, so much so that 
that the timelines involved were so short that identifying the patients had even been poisoned was a tricky one in itself. Chima, who was the, the gentleman who died, suspected he'd been poisoned and told the ambulance crew that when they when they called in the ambulance. So we had it in the back of our minds that this might be a possibility. But because they deteriorated and he died so rapidly, there was no time to identify what the what the agent was. It was very interesting because it is such a rare poison, particularly in, in the Western world. In India, it's more common, and it's also used as a, a herbal remedy in Chinese herbal medicine, but it's virtually unheard of in, in the UK or in, in America or the Western world. From a physician point of view, the whole goal of treatment in this particular case would be to try and save the patient's life. So we would have an, an algorithm that we have drummed into us from medical school about how to approach acutely unwell patients, whatever is wrong with them, and it's to stabilise each individual body system in turn to prevent the patient deteriorating or dying. It's called the ABCDE approach. That is what we, the doctors looking after these patients would have tried to have done in the first instance. So it wouldn't necessarily have been about identifying a poison or an agent in particular. It would be to try and save their lives. Proving a clear connection between ex-girlfriend Singh, the curry and the toxin that killed Lucky wasn't straightforward. The first challenge was to identify the toxin. Scientists tested for nicotine and arsenic, but it ruled both out. Police were, were called and the National Poisons Information Service were called, who gave advice on what were the best tests to do to try and identify an as yet unknown poison and what tests could be sent off. So things like contents of the stomach at post-mortem could be sent, blood samples could be taken, and we have to make sure that we take the right blood samples and they're in the right kind of blood tubes. And given this is a legal case, there has to be a chain of evidence and a chain of custody observed as well to ensure that any evidence that is secured and in identifying the poison can be used in a court of law as well. Lots of poisons don't have specific antidotes and treatment is supportive rather than trying to find an agent to counteract the effect of the poison. So the approach from the National Poison Service at the time would have been similar to any unknown poison to just try and save lives. But it would have been important that they were had in the back of their minds as well. We need to find out what this was because this has legal implications and we need to think about what samples we need to be collecting and uh, how we do that. The main presenting symptom they had initially was was vomiting. And that's quite a, a nebulous and ubiquitous symptom. But they progressed rapidly in their, in their poisoning. They then developed pins and needles in the face, particularly around the mouth and then extending to the hands as well. And that became quite disabling to the point when they weren't able to, to, to use things like telephones and things like that. They also then developed visual disturbances and ultimately Chima lost his ability to see quite rapidly. That led on to muscle weakness and to changes in sensation in, in the limbs. But the most significant, from a medical point of view, effect of the poison was what it was doing to the poison patient's hearts. We can see that they developed multiple arrhythmias of the heart. The electrical activity of the heart was massively disturbed, such to the point where, particularly in Chima, it was unable to sustain the mechanical ability of the heart to pump blood around the body. This happened very rapidly. We're talking about uh, between 60 to 120 minutes after poisoning that severe symptoms of poisoning occurred. Aconite poisoning in particular 
is interesting because it has an unusual mechanism of poisoning at the cellular level. It's relatively unique. Other plant poisons which have similar effects work in different ways. Things like mandrake and hemlock work in slightly different ways. They tend to block electrical signals, whereas aconite tends to increase them. And that's an unusual mechanism of action. And it's also arguably harder to treat. It also tends to have similar effects to nerve agent poisoning as well. A lot of the symptoms you see are similar to those that you would see in nerve agent poisoning. And indeed, some of the the chemicals in the aconite plant actually do work in a similar way to to nerve agent poisoning. They block an enzyme called acetylcholinesterase, which ultimately leads to the same symptoms that you would get in nerve agent poisoning. It's also an incredibly rare poison, which makes it interesting by very dint of its nature. Few people have heard of forensic botany, a discipline that can stretch from the analysis of clues left in traces of ancient pollen grains to the information coded in tree rings. Whether it's a detailed understanding of the makeup of aquatic environments, to the chemical composition of soil, to the hidden rules of how ecosystems work, knowing what to look for is half the challenge in helping investigators solve mysteries. It is here on site at Kew that scientists are able to help investigators solve their mysteries. I met Professor Monique Simmons, OBE, to find out more. I'm Monique Simmons, and I am Deputy Director of Science at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew. Believe it or not, the tiniest samples can offer vital clues and evidence in a number of situations. Monique explained how plants can leave their trace even when a perpetrator doesn't. Plants can be used in so many ways. They can be used to identify a scene by what could be on, say, a pullover, the victim's clothes, their shoes, in the grooves of the shoes, the seeds, the particles. They can often identify, you know, where a crime took place. And then you've got, you know, how it's possibly been used if it's a plant toxin. So different aspects of botany can assist with where a plant took place and possibly if a plant was used, um, you know, which plant and therefore, you know, where it could have come from. So you can, you can use it in different ways, but you need to have that basic botanical knowledge. Depending on the role that the plant plays, you'll need to have different aspects of plant science coming into it. So pollen or even the hairs on the back of a leaf of a plant that can cling to your clothing can be preserved for many, you know, for for many, many years. Plants can't run away or hide from threats, so they've had to evolve a different evolutionary strategy in the form of toxic compounds that can act as a defence mechanism. Monique and her colleagues were brought in to help identify the mysterious poison when events were still unfolding. Police suspected murder but the evidence Q could provide would help them find the answers. Initially, when they got the emergency telephone, then when they got the two patients into hospital, there were some kind of common characteristics, and that was blurred vision, numbness, a very shallow heartbeat. And that kind of indicated some form of toxicity, so they rule out the usual things that could be associated, like arsenic, etc. 
the patients didn't have some of those characteristics like, you know, diarrhea and other things. So it looked like it was having an effect on the nervous system. And that kind of leads you to possibly plant-based poisons. And some of these that are known to affect the nervous system can be alkaloids, a group of chemicals from plants that are known to cause effects on the nervous system. But they, they, at that stage, they couldn't detect them. Because we'd already done work for the National Poisonous Unit, some of those involved knew about some of the work that we'd been doing at Kew. At this stage, information was strictly on a need-to-know basis. The symptoms had led scientists to look at aconitum, which you might know as monkshood or wolfsbane. We were asked to, to see if we could assist with a, a toxicity. So we hadn't got a lot of background information other than the fact that the people involved in the case thought that toxicity could be associated with alkaloids that come from aconitum species. But their tests had shown that that wasn't the case. We were not told anything about, you know, the, the, the victims or how this had happened. We were just asked if we could identify these because they're, you know, associated with a potential uh, murder case. Then you get more details as, you, as you're kind of guided through. So sometimes they don't want to totally lead you. We're usually not told everything because they want to have some form of independence. So, you know, it's, it's gradually revealed to us. In any poisoning case, it's a race against time to identify the chemical toxin that has caused the symptoms. If you can have a knowledge about what the plant is and the toxin associated with that adverse response, then that's where the, uh, the medical profession can be more accurate in the form of antidote that they will use because many of those antidotes are, are, are pretty strong in themselves and sometimes it can be very dangerous to use the wrong material. You can cause more problems, but if you can have it really directed by an accurate identification of what the toxins are, that can assist greatly. The ability of having a real professional, in, you know, a member of my team was with Jeff Kite, to be able to get that really accurate analysis done at each stage is really a key to solve this, this issue. So it's like having a unique botanical fingerprint of that particular sample that could be followed. Monique explained how samples were released to Q for testing as the investigation and the questions evolved. So was it aconitine or was it, you know, a related species? So at that stage, we didn't know all the details. That only became clearer later on. They said they'd be able to send us some samples, either blood or samples from the digestive tract of the one of the victims. And then the curry, could we look at the curry? And then they said that they had got some leaf powder from a bag that had been found in Mrs. Seng's pocket. And we said, well, we'll start off on that one. That would be the easiest thing if you think there is a link. Thanks for listening to Unearthed. I'll be back again in just a minute. But first, here's a message from our supporter, Kim Cottrell. As a charity, the Royal Botanic Gardens Kew 
is facing a severe funding crisis right now. The impact of coronavirus has created a financial shortfall of 15 million pounds. This money is vital for the upkeep of these beautiful botanic gardens and crucial to continuing its global conservation work. Plants and fungi hold many of the answers to the world's biggest challenges, such as climate change, food security, and biodiversity loss. And Q needs to play a role in furthering the science and identifying desperately needed solutions. If there's one positive thing that could come out of this pandemic, it will be to encourage each and every one of us to look afresh and with urgency at these global challenges. If you are enjoying this podcast and feel inspired by the work that Q does, please go to Q.org to donate today to help not only protect Q, but also preserve the future of our planet. Because we understand the processes behind plants, it's possible for the team at Q to work with a wide range of samples in forensic cases. Yes, we have an idea because of work that's been done on the biosynthetic processes of these plants and sometimes how, therefore, that they can be broken down. Now, if we can get something from the gut, it may be that it hasn't been totally digested. So sometimes it's easier to be able to identify uh, plant matter in the gut. It will depend on what part of the gut. In some cases, we will get the blood samples. If that is the case, then we need to know what are the breakdown components associated with the particular uh, plant metabolites. In this case, we didn't need to go as far as that because we could link what had been found in the pocket, what had been found in the curry, what had been found in the samples that were found in the fridge, and then, you know, in the stomach content. If it had been later on, it might, we might not have been able to do it, but unfortunately, you know, it was a very short time before the victim died in this particular case. So what did they find? Some people wouldn't realise at Q that we, we have this very sophisticated equipment that allows us to do the chemical work. And that's done by a method called liquid chromatography mass spectrometry that allows us to have this, this fingerprint of the chemicals we could see that there were 19 alkaloids in this sample. Now, that's quite complex. But one of them was in high amounts, and that was pseudo-aconitine. Pseudo-aconitine, an extremely toxic alkaloid chemical, is found within the roots of a plant known as Indian monkshood, or Aconitum ferox. This discovery was absolutely key in understanding what had happened. It hadn't shown up in previous tests simply because the scientists didn't know to look for it. Now, that is something that the previous people hadn't spotted. Now, why we had it on our database is the fact that we had previously dealt with some toxicity problems associated with this plant material. And this plant material, we thought, mm, it actually doesn't come from a British plant. It's a possibility it comes from an Indian plant. And that we were able to put the pieces of the jigsaw together. So once we'd got the chemical fingerprints, we could then go back from the material 
that had been found in the pocket to look at the curry and we could see that the curry had a similar type of profile and then we could link that to the victim. You need to know what to look for and then the, the methodology that would enable you to t detect it. Because in some cases, you know, there aren't commercial libraries that have, you know, all the ingredients in that could be potential toxics. You have to build those libraries up, which is one of the things that Q has been doing. And of course, the other thing that we have at Q is knowledge about the uses of plants. Now, some of those could be bad uses, i.e. plants that are known to be toxic and possibly have been known to be used, you know, in homicide. And we collect that type of information. So we just knew that historically some plants had been used in India, you know, for homicide. And just having that knowledge enables us to sometimes make those links, especially when we have knowledge about the symptoms that the person has who died. So we can put the bits of the jigsaw together. When it came to the curry killer case, establishing what the mysterious substance was, was not only key in the race to find life-saving treatment, but also in seeking justice. That unique plant fingerprint allowed Monique to establish the species and possible origin of this plant. This in turn shed further light on events. When we thought, oh, right, this is a plant that comes from India, or let's say that part of Asia, I should be, you know, it's kind of Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, that kind of area. Is it possible that she'd visited or it could have been that she got it from, you know, from a, a herbalist, but you're kind of thinking maybe not. Of course, that, that becomes important. You could show that this had been planned. Aconitum is a notoriously toxic genus containing over 250 species. You might have heard its common names like Devil's Helmet, Monk's Hood, or Wolfsbane. Yep, it's that mysterious plant mythologized by Ovid, Keats, and of course, your favorite teen werewolf novels. It typically has blue-purple hooded flowers, but there's quite a lot of variation across the genus. The alkaloid toxin it produces, aconitine, is notoriously difficult to detect. In fact, the last time an English court convicted anyone of using the poison was in 1882, when a doctor called George Henry Lamson used it to poison his brother-in-law. It's a fast-acting neuro and cardiotoxin, and victims appear to have asphyxiated. Monique explains a little more about the history of the species we're familiar with in the UK and its cousin, Aconitum ferox. Often it, it hasn't been used in a bad way. It's, it's known to contain poisons. The other bit of this story is the fact for a long time it had been, in the past it had been used because it was actually very difficult to detect these types of compounds. So people have got away with using some of these plants as toxins because the investigators hadn't got the you know, ability to detect it unless they found the plant material uh, had been used. So this was a species called ferox that comes from India that had been used in the case. So it's not the British species that often goes under the name of wolfbane. So it's an example, you could say, of 19th century methods 
been detected by 21st century techniques. We've advanced in our ability to detect toxins that we would not have had in the 19th and earlier 20th century. I asked Monique what we knew about the modern uses of this species of aconitum, ferox, in India. It is used sometimes as a medicine in low, low concentrations. And sometimes it will be therefore used if it's a, a trained herbalist. It will be used, say, to clear the body. And sometimes it, it, it's used for anti-inflammatory conditions. But it would only be used for a very, very short time. It's sometimes also used in treatment of eye problems. But in the hands of a real kind of professional herbalist, may, you know, may be OK, but sometimes they don't fully know enough about the, the plant to be aware of some of the problems associated with continual use. People should think twice about using some of these plants. They tried to put evidence like this together and it doesn't always work because you only have you know, part of a story. I think in this particular case, the police were able to link the fact that Mrs Singh had been over to India, you know, potential, had got some material. She was in possession of the raw material. There was evidence that it was in the curry. There's evidence that that curry was then used as part of a meal with the two people that suffered, and the fact that we could then link that with one of the victims. So if we could put every bit of the stage together, enabled the police to have a pretty solid case. And then we found out afterwards that evidently there was an attempt before. The evidence gathered, including Q's vital findings, were enough to convict a murderer. The judge, Paul Worsley, at the Old Bailey, condemned Singh's actions in court. You are not just a spurned lover. You did not simply explode in anger at your rejection. You set about a cold and calculating revenge. For the first time in decades, an Aconita murderer was behind bars. This calculated murder didn't only have an impact on the lives of Chima's family and fiancé. The investigation broke new ground for how Q collaborates with authorities. I asked Monique how the pace of the investigation has caused her and others to reflect on how such cases are handled moving forwards. Perhaps a new methodology might even be useful in other forensic processes. We're hoping to increase the amount of knowledge about DNA that would be able to be used. We're also very, very keen on um, crime associated with the trade in endangered species. And that will be, you know, recognising timber that is from endangered plants to make sure that only appropriate timber gets used in different forms of timber trade. Q is an invaluable resource in investigating unknown poisons because when you exhaust your list of common poisons, you have to start looking at the rarer things. Often plant-based poisoning does tend to be the second or third line chemical which people fall back on when they're either poisoning themselves or poisoning others. And we end up having to, to look for rarer poisons which are known to have significant effects. And the plant world generally tends to provide those chemicals quite frequently. 
So Q is an invaluable resource in testing samples and being able to compare chemicals that we identify at post-mortem or in blood samples in the living patient with chemicals that they have isolated from plants. They're also an invaluable resource when we are identifying a poisoning or trying to exclude a poisoning in patients in whom we know that they've actually ingested a plant itself so we can actually compare what we have to what they have on their records to identify whether it truly is a poison or not. An example of that would be hemlock which is poisonous in the UK and cow parsley which is not look very very similar so it's useful that they can identify the two different species and be able to tell us whether what has been ingested is actually toxic or not. Next time on Unearthed from Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. 80% of people in Papua New Guinea live in rural areas. And when we say rural, we don't really mean people driving around in Land Rovers in Devon. We mean people living right out in really hard to access areas. We'll find out how plants from around the world have been used locally, exported and exploited as medicines. By harnessing the properties of plants all the way from forest to pharmacy, social history has been changed. Ecosystems reshaped and communities transformed around the world. Some indigenous tribes in northern Ecuador, they use uh, one brownia species, the brownia ganticeps, as a contraceptive. Make sure you don't miss it by subscribing on your podcast app now. You can share this episode with the hashtag QUnearthed and follow at QGardens on social media. I'm James Wong. Thanks for listening. <laughs>